Welcome to the Novice No Longer Podcast, Episode 17. Coming up, how hard is it really to transition from building traditional apps to games? I talk with Bobby Gill, the founder of Blue Label Labs, about building mobile apps and his upcoming word game. But first, I want to tell you a short story. When I was in college, I knew someone who sold marijuana. Now, he wasn't a big-time dealer or anything, but he'd buy an ounce at a time, and then he would break it up and he would sell it in grams. But here's the deal. He would only need to sell 20 grams in order to make back the full amount of what he spent on the ounce. And if you're able to do the math, that leaves a little over 8 grams as leftover, as profit. But those grams, the leftover grams, were not for sale. It just so happened that the time that it took him to sell the 20 grams was about the same time that it took him to generously smoke and share the remaining 8 grams. Now, this this wasn't the best situation by any means. What he was doing was illegal, and I know that he eventually stopped because he just lived in constant fear of being caught. But it was a system that just always intrigued me. And as I got older, I realized that there is a term for this, and that is, it's a lifestyle entrepreneur. And that means that basically not all ventures need to be the next Facebook or Google. In fact, many people wouldn't even want to run a major company like this because there's just so many moving parts and so much stress that it's it's much better to be able to have the freedom to do what you want. And that is where a lifestyle business comes in and a lifestyle entrepreneur because you build a business that supports your lifestyle and it supports the things that you want to do. Bobby, my guest today, founded Blue Label Labs, which builds apps for clients half the time in order to support developing their own apps the rest of the time. It's a great way for the company to follow its own passion projects while helping bring other people's ideas to life. Now, this interview is full of great information. I loved talking to him about his job and his time at Microsoft and why he left for business school. He's actually got some really great insights about when it's actually valuable to go back to school because usually I just tell people not to waste some money and just go out and do something. But it really worked out great for him. And anyway, that's enough from me. I want to let Bobby get in here too. So enjoy the interview. Hey, this is Dan, and you are listening to the Novice No Longer podcast. My guest today is Bobby Gill, the founder and self-proclaimed spiritual leader uh, at Blue Label Labs, a New York-based mobile design and development lab for iOS, Android, and Windows Phone. He has a passion for the same things that I'm passionate about, which are apps. So, Bobby, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. So, you founded Blue Label Labs about five years ago now, and I'd love to hear about your journey and background, because I'm always interested in hearing how people got to where they are today. So, how, what is your story? How did it begin? Okay, well, uh, I guess my story began uh, in the frigid north of Canada, uh, where I was born, and uh, I went to school there. Um, so, I studied computer science, uh, and I graduated in 2005. Uh, from there, I, I made this switch uh, and uh, came down to the U.S. and I went to work for Microsoft for uh, four years. And so uh, at Microsoft, I was a, a program manager in the Windows Server team. And so I, I led an engineering team in building various features uh, that went into uh, the security part of uh, Windows uh, Server. And then uh, around 2008, 2009, I was, you know, I was getting kind of tired of the uh, the corporate thing, and I was looking for, you know, what's next? Where am I going to go from here? And I decided uh, uh, to go to business school. And so I, I moved to New York in 2009, 
um, and I went to Columbia for two years. Um, and that was basically my chance to kind of think about, okay, what's next? What are the things I want to do? Um, you know, do I want to be in tech? Do I want to be somewhere else? And ultimately, when I came out of business school, and um, you know, I, I was I, I was inspired then, you know, that that was the one chance that I had to really start a company and you know do something on my own without you know going back into another job. And so, Blue Label Labs kind of uh, it started while I was in business school as you know uh, somewhat of like a consulting gig. And then by the time I had left business school, you know, I you know I had seen mobile apps coming and I'd seen the the, the interest that people had in there, and I was it was an area I wanted to get into. Um, and luckily for me, uh, one of my good friends uh, from back at Microsoft, uh, his name's Jordan, uh, he, he was growing tired of the Microsoft life too, and he quit um, when I graduated, and he joined me um, as my co-founder uh, for Blue Label Labs. And from there, we both, you know, we both wanted to build apps, we wanted to experiment to see if we can you know, create our own stuff, uh, and we wanted to uh, explore with the technology. And so since then, you know, we've been just all up in the app world. That, that's amazing. And I, I have some questions for you that I want to get into later about your experiences going back to school, because I think a lot of people have some really strong opinions about that. And I would love to hear your opinions there, but I kind of want to go back to Microsoft and kind of how you got started there. And maybe this is a dumb question, but what is a program manager? Like, what did you do while you were there? All right. That's a, that's a good question because like when I when I when I joined Microsoft, I asked myself the same thing: What is a program manager? What am I supposed to do? Um, it's a, it's an interesting role where, as a program manager, you you own uh, a certain piece of functionality or a certain product, uh, and basically what that means is that you then need to you know marshal the resources, the engineering resources, the testers, the the marketers, and the consultants, and you know not only design uh, what the feature is supposed to look like, but also you know lead the team in actually building it. And so at Microsoft, you worked in you know, semi-independent units called feature teams where you'd have developers, testers, uh, designers, uh, and a program manager who led the team. Uh, and the program manager you know, was responsible for you know, getting, the, uh, getting the feature, the functionality completed on time and on budget um, and you know, making sure that the team works well with them and to get it done. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty tough job because uh, at Microsoft, and I embedded a lot of other tech firms, the program manager doesn't is not anybody's manager per se. Like the, the people didn't work for me in the organizational chart, um, but they were assigned to the, the feature teams that I led, and so they they call it um, delegation without authority. Where you know you want to lead these people, but you don't have any authority over them. Um, and so it, it's it's a, it's a tough job, but it's a, it was actually a very rewarding job because I got to work on uh, many different aspects and was worked with some brilliant developers and learned a lot um, about the engineering side. Um, but then also a lot more about the you know the the software release cycle, managing managing engineers, managing all that, which has really become uh, which is really a very hard thing to learn, especially if you are an engineer by training, because you know a lot of it doesn't make sense and it's it's not as straightforward and you know logical as you'd want it to be. Yeah, and I mean at least especially for me in terms of kind of overseeing a project or something that I want to get done. I know for a lot of the projects that I'm doing, I'm used to just doing all of the individual pieces myself. Like if I want something, I look into how to get it done and then I'll go out and do it. And the skill that you learned while you were at Microsoft was kind of who had strengths there, being able to kind of see the bigger picture because you were in charge of a feature or a program and just uh, resource allocation is just a really important skill to have. And that's something that I still continue to work on every day. Well, same here. Yeah, in my in my current role, you know, I, I do a lot of the same thing, and a lot of the lessons I learned from Microsoft kind of carry forward. But it is still a very, it's a tough thing because 
knowing who's knowing what an engineer can do and you know assigning the right amount of work and you know kind of observing how they work to see you know is it a good fit is it actually working out it's still you know a very it's a soft skill that I'm continuing to develop mm-hmm. and I gotta resist the urge as well to jumping in and doing it myself because a lot of the times I'm like you know what I can just go fix this I can go just go implement this in like a day uh, and you know we can just cut out the middleman but that doesn't really scale, you know, as you want to take on more projects and that, you know, I have to fight the urge to do that. Um, it was something at Microsoft I had to learn to do too, because uh, I have the, uh, the comp side background and, you know, I, I, I could program these things, but that really wasn't my job. Um, exactly. I, I was going to say that must be especially hard for you because you have the programming background. So for me, like I've studied, I know a little bit of Objective-C, a little bit of Java, at, like I could look at code and figure out what it's doing, but I can't really do it myself. But you being able to just jump in and do it, that must be uh, difficult to kind of let go. Yeah, it is because uh, I love doing it too. I love coding. <laughs> and so uh, it is, uh, it's very much, you have to learn to trust uh, the developers and, you know, know that, you know, if, if you have the right ones, they're going to deliver for you. But then, you know, there comes a time where even at Microsoft, I remember where it's a deadline crunch where you, the team's on the death march to get like a, a release out. And so that's when they actually do need extra hands to help code. And I, I remember back then I would jump in and then, you know, I would take on a piece of work that we didn't have the resources to do. And I was like, okay, I'll go fix this. I'll go do this while the rest of the team does that. So it's a good, flex, it, it gives me flexibility in order to kind of augment the team with an additional pair of hands when it needs it. Yeah, that was really valuable to Microsoft, I'm sure. I, I bet, yeah. They, they probably got the, the, their money's worth out of me. Mm-hmm. But one of the things you mentioned was kind of wanting to leave the corporate culture or the, the, cult, the corporate kind of experience. And that's one of the reasons why you decided to go to business school. What was it like and what were you hoping for? Is that a clear enough question? In, in business school? Yeah, it what was it like working in the corporate side of things, and what did you, what kind of work experience did you want to have that was different than that? Right. So, the, the, I guess this is more of a function of kind of like large organizations working. Whether I, I, like Microsoft is a, is a great company, and like compared to a lot of other industries, in that it's a it's a really good company in terms of how it treats its people and how it, how it does things. But you know, we I was working in a team of 100 people who are within, you know, a, a broader server and tools division of maybe like 15,000 people. Um, and so we're working on we're working on this one product and I spent 5 years working on the release of a single server product and it was very for somebody who wanted to, to to experiment, to actually play with a lot of different technologies, do a lot of different things, um, it is kind of stifling in that you know, we worked on this one product for five years, and that was basically it. And, it, and this was a little niche product in the server industry that, you know, nobody I would talk to would know. Um, and so it was very much, you know, it, it was, I, I didn't want to become like a, a master or I didn't want to build my career uh, in being um, a domain expert in this one particular field. I wanted to, to go broader and wider. Uh, and, it's, and it's hard to actually do that in a, in a large company, uh, I found, because you know, the flexibility is somewhat there, but then you have to worry about your career path, you have to worry about you know, your promotions and whether or not you're going to you know, continue to move up or, uh, and be successful, because you know, a lot of the time you have conflicts between your own personal goals and what the company uh, wants you to do for them. Mm-hmm. And so around, yeah, when I, around four years into it, I, I was starting to see, you know, I like this, I don't mind the job, but if I was looking 10 years down the road, seeing what roles I would be in and the people, you know, I was working with who were there, I was like, I really don't want to do that. Um, it doesn't look all that much fun to do, uh, to, to be in those roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so then, you know, I always had the itch that, you know, I want to do something on my own. Um, I want to, you know, 
I want to you know see what I can achieve. But then another thing being in the in, in the, the a company like Microsoft is that after a while it's very hard to leave. They 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 make it like fi- very financially hard to leave as well as just from a work lifestyle balance. A lot of good things you have to give up. Uh, and business school was like a good reason to leave. It was it was a reason that you know it gave me some security that hey. I'm leaving to not go do nothing. I'm going to, to get an education and hopefully, you know, use it as a stepping stone. And so it, it was a nice transition for me. It was, it, was, uh, it was easier than, you know, just quitting and going and doing something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I definitely relate a lot to that because I was a writer at The Verge and mm-hmm. it, it was amazing. And it's one of the best companies. I can't imagine Vox, their parent company, is just one of the best companies I've ever experienced seen anything they're amazing but i was kind of looking at what i was doing which was writing reviews writing news articles and i saw kind of where i could grow and i i just couldn't see that wasn't exactly what i wanted to be doing i wanted to be doing this and talking to people and building products and helping people build products and that's really where my passion was and i just i didn't see it and it was one of the hardest decisions I ever made because it's such an amazing company. I loved it and everybody there is amazing, but it just wasn't right for me. Right. And it's the same thing I felt like, yeah, it was very just, you know, it's good. This is a great setup and it's very hard to leave, but like there wasn't like this, the alignment with, you know, deep down in me that, you know, this is what I really want to do. So you you just got to go find the next thing. Now, what made you decide to do business school rather than trying to find another job? Well, for me, I went through a little bit of a, um, well, well, I guess uh, existential crisis in the sense that, you know, I, I went to school at an engineering school. I went, I went to a Canadian university, uh, Waterloo, it's called. And I went in uh, as a math, computer science um, student when I was 17. Um, before that, I was programming on my own in my room and stuff. And, you know, I went, did five years of school. Then I did four years at Microsoft in a very hardcore tech role. And I was, I was asking myself, do I want to do tech? Like, you know, I enjoy certain aspects of it, but there's a lot of it that, you know, was starting to grain on me. And I had not seen what the rest of the world was doing. I didn't know what jobs outside of technology were like and what people did. So uh, business school was an interesting opportunity because I, I wanted to try out, you know, consulting, uh, strategy consulting, um, and maybe other roles. And so uh, it gave me the chance to go not only meet people who did the other things and kind of see what their careers are and what, what the jobs are like that, but it also, you know, I, I had an internship in the summer of business school where I, you know, got to go play strategy consultant for a summer and, you know, I got to, you know, be a part of the team and see what that's like. Um, and so, you know, coming out of that, it's very interesting because I went to business school thinking, okay, I'm done with tech. You know, I'm not going to be not going to be doing any more of this for a while. But then going through there and, you know, meeting the people, seeing the jobs, my job experience over the summer, I, I became more convinced that technology was probably the right fit for me um, because, you know, compared to the stuff that I saw out there, I really, uh, my my background and the jobs I had available, the opportunities I have available in technology were a lot more um, lucrative as well as personally satisfying. Um, And so it it kind of, it gave me the chance to to reevaluate, see what else was out there. And then, you know, I kind of just came home to, to where I was before with, you know, more, more certainty of what I want to do. Now you came out to New York for school. You went to Columbia. Did you choose Columbia or did you want to come out to New York specifically? Uh, I wanted to go to, I wanted to go to uh, New York. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wanted to go to, I I definitely wanted to go to like a top 10 business school. Yeah. Uh, But then uh, when it came down to it, I really wanted to, to be in New York because uh, again, the, the I was in Seattle for four years, and Seattle's a pretty uh, it's a dreary place, and it really wears on you uh, the, the grayness and the overcast and stuff. And so, 
New York really fit the bill as to, you know, where I wanted to go just from a, an opportunity standpoint. And, you know, Columbia was a great school. Uh, and so that's why uh, I chose it. It was funny. I've been to Seattle once and uh, I ended up taking a cruise from Seattle for my parents' 30th anniversary and it left from Seattle. So we spent one day before the cruise left and one day after. So like it was eight days apart and both days were bright and sunny. It was <laughs> hilarious because everybody always says that it's so rainy there. But yeah, it was nice. We were walking around. It was nice and sunny. But yeah, I just hear that it, it's not like that usually. Well, in the summer, it's actually really nice. Like, I think like Seattle summers are beautiful. Like from like June till September, it's it's around like seventy to eighty degrees every day, blue skies. It's it's perfect. But then you have the the other ten months that where it's just gray and mm-hmm. it, it's it's very dreary. It's like people have like real like uh, like there's a seasonal affectiveness disorder. Like it's a real it's a real concern in Seattle because people just get sad and depressed because mm-hmm. they just don't see the sun. Yeah, I couldn't and, do it. I couldn't yeah. do it myself. It's uh. I would only go there for the summer, but otherwise, yeah, it's just, it's, it wears on you. So I, I'd much rather take like the blizzards and the hurricanes and whatever else New York throws at us than yeah, that. Yeah. So what was the value of business school then? Did you learn new things? Was it more about the connections that you made? Was it a different perspective on life? Like what was, I, I guess it could be all of the above, but what was the real value for you? Well, I think it, uh, it, it, it there's like three big things for me in terms of how, business school was the benefit for me, even though I'm not in traditional business uh, school mm-hmm. uh, career path. I guess the first one was in the actual skills and the term and what I learned. Um, again, I came from a comp sci background. I didn't know uh, about financial accounting, managerial accounting. I didn't really understand uh, you know, how to look at a, a balance sheet or an income statement. All these kind of technical skills around you know, managing a business, running a business, how to you know, manage operations, scale up device strategy and all that. That was all very new to me. It was very interesting to learn. And it's, uh, it's super applicable now, uh, you know, running my own company. A lot of those lessons really come in and help, and it helps me, you know, plot the course forward and, and know what we're going to do uh, and know what we uh, need to do from a business standpoint. So that was very, very useful. Um, the second is the network, of course. The, the people you meet uh, are very interesting. They're all, you know, high achieving mid to mid to late twenties people from all sorts of industries across the world. And so, um, you know, I made a lot of new friends. I got to see what a lot of other people across the world are doing, the types of jobs they have, their experiences, or whatnot. And it actually has benefited uh, the business um, since I've left school, both in terms of you know um, having former classmates as clients, but also. Um, working with former classmates and, you know, as, as our suppliers, as uh, in partnerships uh, with Blue Label, so that really has been uh, a very good benefit. And it's a very, it's a very, uh, it's hard to quantify it, um, but I, I definitely believe that, that, that the network is probably one of the most, the strongest reasons to go. Um, and then finally was the uh, the, the experience in uh, looking at uh, other career paths and seeing what jobs are out there beyond the one that I was doing in technology. So there's a huge recruiting push there. You go interview. I interviewed at finance firms. I went through like sales and trading uh, recruitment as well as banking recruitment, strategy consultant. And then you see, you kind of get past what you read in the newspapers and the magazines or what you hear through the, you you get to see really what these jobs are. What is it that people do day in, day out? Uh, And it takes away kind of like uh, Maybe some of the glamour we have in our head when we uh, attach to certain professions or, you know, the, the, the feeling that we have that, oh, that I think I'd be better off at doing that. 
Um, but when you actually go see it and you see what the jobs are like, you, you get to, you know, you get to compare it very accurately to what you like and you get a really good picture of where, um, where you want to go. So I think I look back at my business school education and I think I'm very grateful for it because it gave me the, 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 the excuse to, to, to leave Microsoft um, and find a different direction. And then it, it gave me more, uh, more resolve when I did decide on what that direction was going to be. Mm-hmm. See, those are the insights that I like to hear people say when they talk about school. Because I think we force kids to go to school way too young. Like, I went to college right out of high school, four-year university, and I majored in creative writing. Like, mm-hmm. I wrote a play as my honors thesis, which was wow. fun, and I enjoyed it. But it, the value that you're talking about and meeting these people and doing this stuff, like, I would have loved to have done that, but I just, I wasn't at a place in my life at that time where that would have been valuable to me. So I'm so glad that it worked out for you so well. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, So far it is. So so, far. Exactly. Yeah. So speaking of that, what do you do at Blue Label Labs? Okay. So, uh, I'm the, uh, the CEO and I'm also what you probably call the CTO. Um, so Blue Label Labs, we, we build mobile apps, um, both uh, our own mobile apps, our own titles, but also a lot of apps for our clients. Um, and so I, I co-founded the company with uh, one of my friends from Seattle, and he handles the, the design side of the, the house. Basically, when we, when we have a new client come in, he, he, does the, the, he sits down with them, figures out what these apps are supposed to look like, works with the designers to get them all laid out and specified or whatnot. Um, I, on the other hand, I lead the engineering team. So basically, I take the specifications and uh, the designs that they, they, the design team comes up with, and then I work with my engineering team to figure out, okay, how do we, how do we design this technically, and then okay, let's go implement that. And so I spend most of my time either, you know, reviewing design documents, putting together architecture documents, and then managing um, the engineering team and actually how they go about uh, building these things and managing that process. So. Uh, I, I, my, my role is pretty technical. I get to play with a lot of different technologies, which is actually really cool. Um, and uh, it really suits a lot of my strengths in that, you know, I, I am an engineer of my background and I get, to, I get to play in the code when I want to. But for the most part, I get to stand back and experiment a bit and then hand off to the engineers where they go implement it and whatnot. Now, somebody that's coming, you, coming to Blue Label Labs to get an app built what kind of stage is their idea or their app in? Like, where where are they, and what kind of apps are they usually trying to make? Uh, it runs uh, the whole gamut. So, a lot of our clients uh, are 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 not technically savvy. They have uh, an idea, they have uh, like a concept of what they want to achieve, uh, but they don't they don't know what what it means to achieve it or how it should look like or, or what the what what the final product should be. So, a lot of our clients just come to us saying, "Hey, I have an idea for blank blank," and the, the ideas span the gamut. We've built uh, social networking apps. We've built uh, utilities. Uh, we've built like a, a fertility app. Um, we've done a wide gamut uh, of client-related projects. But they generally come to us in that idea phase. And then they sit down with uh, my co-founder. They sit down with uh, one of our designers and probably another other uh, a program manager we have. Uh, and then they spend like a good, uh, the first four or five weeks just kind of going through, fleshing out the, the idea into an actual product uh, and designing the features and designing the look and the feel. And so we really, we really work with a lot of our clients from like that idea phase and we kind of shepherd them through all the processes eventually to, uh, you know, app store release and then marketing it and then, you know, revising it and growing it. 
And then on the other hand, there's some clients who come to us. Um, this is, this is, I guess, telling in terms of some of people's experiences with app development is that uh, people come to us with like half-built apps or apps that they had other teams working on. Um, and for some reason or another, they didn't like the other team or things fell apart. And so we, we, we inherit a code base or something that was built by somebody else. And, you know, we take it the, the, the last mile to get it finished uh, and to, to get it where it needs to be. And so uh, people, people come on both ends of that, uh, the spectrum. And that can be terrifying for you because if that developer or coder didn't know what they're doing, then it, it might look pretty on the outside. Maybe they have some good wireframes or whatever, but the entire code end just could be completely messed up. Oh, absolutely! Like I've seen, like we we're very careful when we take on those projects because uh-huh. you don't know what you, you don't know what you're signing up for in terms of like technical debt or like kind of the bugs that are in there. And like there, there's a lot of I, I've I've seen a lot of people who had like poor experiences with like offshore development teams and they, they just throw their hands up in the air and the end they're like, I'm just going to go find somebody local to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we take a, we take the code and like a lot of the times it's just a mess. It's just, you look at it, it just makes your head hurt. Cause you're just like, how are you, why are you, why is this work this way? And you know, it, it doesn't make sense to, to me when I look at it. And then, you know, there on the other end, there's sometimes where we, where, I, where we inherit code. I'm like, Oh, that's pretty creative. I like what they did there. We should, we should, we should, we should be doing that. Yeah. But it's all a matter of luck because most likely the person that's hiring the overseas developer doesn't know the first thing about development. So they just lucked yeah. out and got somebody that happened to be amazing. Exactly. Yeah. There's, there's, there's equal parts, you know, you, you, you're unlucky, you get like a, a poor experience and it's the, that's the problem with, if you're not technical and you're like managing like an overseas team or whatnot, you, you really have to, you're, you're taking their word for what they're saying and, you kind of put your fate in their hands and if they're not you know, capable enough to do it or if they're not kind of aligned in terms of what you want, you kind of end up with something you didn't expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's, 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 uh, it's, it, it's telling because a lot of people do tend to go um, to the offshore firms, but um, you know, I, we, we've, we end up picking up a lot of clients who come back because they just didn't have a good experience. Now, how do you find new clients or how do new clients find you? They generally, well, so they generally find us. Um, we're in New York, and so we do app development for a lot of startups and companies here in New York. And um, it, it's uh, quite honestly, we've never really spent money on like outbound marketing and actually going out there and promoting the brand. It's generally people come to our website, they submit the, a form saying, "Hey, they want a consultation," uh, and we take it from there. And then, uh, on the other hand, we're getting a lot of referral business where a lot of our clients who have, you know, we worked with and, you know, they're happy with us. They're, they tell their friends that, hey, you should go use these guys. And so we've been fortunate in that sense where um, we get a lot of people just coming to us and finding us. Uh, and, you know, we, we go from there. And so it's, uh, it's, a, it's a good place to be in in terms of a, a development lab. But it's also, you know, it's one of those things where it, I like the referral aspect of it and, you know, Getting referrals are great because it kind of validates that, you know, the work that you did was good and that, you know, the people trust you and people are willing to take a chance with you. Yeah, that's very true. So you don't just do client apps, though. You also make your own. How do you kind of split your time and how does that whole thing work? Right. Yeah, so like we started the company with, because we wanted to build our own apps. We have all sorts of ideas of the things that, you know, wouldn't it be cool if you could even laugh that this, this, and did that. And, um, We've always kind of made it part of like our core philosophy that we want to spend, you know, at least half our time developing our own concepts, uh, bringing our own products to market, uh, and that's what we've been doing over the past years. Is that you know we've experimented in a bunch of different spots. We've released um, apps like Bonder, Danny's List, or uh, games like Pig, 
Um, and, you know, it's kind of given us, it's really been good in that, you know, we put these out there and it gives us the, the knowledge and the experience to then kind of translate it to the client work that comes in because we're able to leverage a lot of the stuff that we've learned in building our own apps and we're able to offer it as kind of a service to our clients. Um, and so they get to, to benefit from kind of the investments we make ourselves uh, in our own products. You know, ideally looking forward, we want to continue building our uh, our own products. We want to develop our own uh uh, our own portfolio. We're we're now moving. Uh, we're experimenting a lot more in games, and so uh, you know, gaming is a very interesting space. And so, even just now, like this month, we uh, we released our latest game uh, for the iOS called WordHack, and that's a you know that's that's a, a type of app we've never really done before. It's a very it's a fun little game, um, but it, it's in a space that you know we haven't had client work ask us to do this. This is something we we kind of went and developed ourselves. Um, to get the experience and to, and to develop it. And so maybe down the road, you know, one day some client will say, hey, I want to make a game, and, you know, we'll be able to leverage that investment to say, okay, we know how to do that and that, and we can apply it to this project. Yeah, making games is completely different from making other types of apps. And usually a, when I taught my workshop in New York City about basically taking people that just had ideas and wanted to know how to make apps, I would always tell them this class is not intended for people that want to make games because that's a completely different kind of territory. How are your experiences different building games from traditional apps? It's very, uh, it's a whole other beast. Um, we built, we released our first uh, game last September. It was called Pig. It's a very simple dice game. Um, and then since then, we and, and we, we did that kind of as a testing ground to get familiar with the technologies involved with making a game, uh, like Game Center, um, physics engines, stuff like that. These are these are concepts we never apply in our normal games. And then right away, we saw that you know, unlike like a usual like app or like a utility app or the apps we build for our clients, a game is very much about its kind of story and its hook, and it's very not. You just can't sit it down and spec it out that it's going to work like X, Y, Z. You got to have to, you have to develop an attachment with the user. You have to encourage the user to play. You have to kind of get in their mind and hook them in there. And it's a very different beast than, you know, building like a, a utility app because it's not, it's not functional. It's not, it's not serving a, a basic, you know, need, a functional need from the user. You're, you're trying to get them hooked on the game and get them excited and get them wanting to play more. So it's a lot of experimentation. It's a lot of you know, let's try this to see what people think and then kind of iterate based off of that uh, to see if we've got the behaviors right um, and whether the game's been designed properly at kind of a story level. Now, how did the idea for WordHack come to you? Well, that, that's actually a good story. The, um, we, we work with a bunch of designers here uh, in New York. And one day, one of the designers we worked with, he always has these app ideas. He's, he's always pitching me app ideas. And for the most part, I'm usually kind of shooting them down, saying, yeah, that's great, but um, I'm the cynical app developer who's been in the industry for a while, so I hear a lot of things all the time. And yeah, so, <laughs> Yeah, and so we, we, we continue to meet, and like, maybe it was like the third or fourth time we had sat down um, to have a drink and he was just going on pitching ideas to me and I'm sitting there kind of just staring at the blank space because each idea he would say I was, wasn't really good. It wasn't enough to kind of interest me. They're more social networking, more of the traditional app ideas we hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as we were leaving, uh, he, he just brought up, I also, have, you know, I also have this idea for a game, a word game. Uh, and he had like, a little illustration that he had made for it and, and he showed it to me and initially like it clicked in my head that wow that's a pretty interesting concept it's a it's a colorful twist to 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 hangman where you know hangman's a very simple game we had played as a kid 
Um, but it's this is like an app version of Hangman, but it's got a, a new twist to it, which actually, when I saw it, was like, wow, that's a really interesting idea. And I, I took it back to my partner, Jordan. I, you know, I said, hey, we, you know, Adam proposed this idea. Uh, what do you think about it? And you know, we were looking for our next game to develop. We had a couple of ideas internally. Uh, but then we looked at this, and we saw that it was a pretty interesting, simple word game. Um, and we thought it could be very fun and very addicting. And so from there, we, we, we worked together with uh, Adam, Jordan, myself, kind of developing the concept uh, through the fall, through the winter, um, prototyping, and then eventually starting development uh, earlier this year. And so it's, a, it's one of those stories where, you know, I, it kind of came out of nowhere. And it wasn't, you know, an idea that we had come up with, as in me and Jordan. It was pitched to us. And it was actually an idea that was pitched that we were, we were really excited about. So. Now, how long did it take to perfect the gameplay? Because the version that you had at the when you had drinks and was pitched to you was was that different from the final version that is going to be out there? Oh yeah, well, the, there was no version, and when it was pitched, it was just like a picture. It wasn't even like a, mm-hmm. it, there, were, there was no app. There was no. It was just a design he had made, and so it started from a PDF that he had, that Adam had made with a couple of sketches of how he saw the game working, uh, and then we, we we blew it out in terms of okay, well, let's see, let's see if the concept even works on an app. And so the first thing we did last fall was to build like a very small prototype where uh, we built a small little shell iOS app, which just uh, basically prototyped the, the basic functions of the game, which was, you know, dragging letters into the right spots, having the concept of helpers, seeing if there is a progression and if, how, how addicting it could be to a person. And so we did that and we showed it to people and people really liked it. It was very like, you know, it was very like obvious that when people we showed to people that they, they they were hooked on the game, they thought it was really good. And so, you know, at the start of the year, you know, we we, we started real formal development on the app itself. Um, you know, building in the rest of the features, putting in the the, the difficulty levels, all sorts of things. Um, and even now, you know, we've we're still in a very we're still in a testing phase where we released the app uh, last week, but we only released it to Canada. Um, we're doing a Canadian-only release right now. I was going to ask you about that because I was looking at this. You have wordhackapp.com, and I'm going to link to that in the show notes so everybody can check this out. The video looks awesome. The game looks really fun, and I was like, I am not in Canada. I cannot play this. <laughs> what made you decide to do that, and when can I get it? The, uh, well, it's, it's, it's one of those things where we've kind of, we're, we're, trying, to, we're trying to build this app, and we're, we're, we want to perfect it, and we want to make sure that when we launch it broadly that it's got the right, it's been tuned properly so that we, we've heard people's feedback, you know, we've made the changes which kind of make the game better. Um, Canada actually turned out to be a really good idea for us because it's, a, you know, it's an English-speaking country. It's, it's very, I'm Canadian, so I can say this. It's very American-like, you know, people, similar tastes, similar kind of backgrounds, urban population, a lot of iPhone usage. And it's a great test bed for, you know, putting the app out there in this, you know, controlled environment and getting feedback from the Canadian users. Um, we've been doing some marketing on Facebook with Facebook mobile app installs targeting Canada. Um, and we're getting really good, great feedback from the Canadian users, which is really letting us get an idea of how people would, you know, generally respond to the app and gives us things we want to do before we release the app broadly, um, you know, into the U.S. Um, and so our, our plan is, you know, over the next month, we're going to continue to expand the scope from Canada to other, uh, other English-speaking countries like uh, New Zealand, Australia, the U.K., um, you know, expanding, uh, getting the feedback, uh, and iterating the app. Eventually, probably at the start of June, um, we're aiming to release WordHack into the U.S., and hopefully by then, you know, we've, the, the, the game itself is, has matured in the hands of the users, where it's not just us in our controlled environment bringing the game forward thinking what's best you know it's us taking what we hear from 
uh, real users and kind of making sure that when the game does go broadly, uh, when it is broadly released, it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's validated and it's, it's, it's better. Yeah, that's really smart, especially when you're making your own game. And it, it reminds me a lot, and this is kind of an embarrassing admission for me, because the game Threes came out, which mm. was just amazing, this new game where you combined numbers to make new numbers, and it was really, really great. And then shortly after, there was this ripoff that wasn't exactly the same, just slightly modified yeah. the rules. It was 2048. And yeah, I've seen that. <laughs> the embarrassing admission is I really like 2048 better. <laughs> and I, I spend so much time on this. And it's so sad. I read a story on Polygon, and I'll try to find it for the show notes, where they were talking about how disappointed the developers of 3s were because they put a lot of time into developing the perfect kind of gameplay, and it takes so long to kind of master whereas 2048 doesn't quite take as long even though it's similar game mechanics and a lot of people like 2048 more even though it is it's i admit it it's a complete knockoff of threes so taking the time to kind of perfect it and see what happens i think is a really smart move for you guys yeah, we'll see where it goes because it's uh, it's one of those things where you know we want to drum up interest we want people to, to 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 know about the app coming and we we kind of want to you know, from our from our previous experiences, you know, just releasing an app like into the all the app stores at once is, you know, it's kind of. I, I think I, I don't think it's you're not really leveraging the the benefits that you get from testing and controlled markets and actually um, waiting and lo- letting it brew for a little bit longer before you you know put some uh, before you promote it a lot and release it more broadly. And I, what you just said just brought me back to. Do you remember color? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. For anybody that doesn't remember this, basically it was uh, a new iOS app that just got millions and millions worth of funding. Forty million. Yeah. Yeah. For, was it forty million? Yeah, it was something I'm seeing. Like it got forty million dollars of funding, but it wasn't released. It was just an idea, and then it got released in the App Store. And it would have been great if it had other users on it, but there was nobody on it because it was so new. So everybody was downloading it, giving it a terrible rating. It just disappeared. It, <laughs> big, big disaster. Color is the quintessential example I like to use mm-hmm. about you know the, the the dangers of you know having a great idea but not testing it and not getting it out there. Exactly, uh, it is a great idea. Like the concept of color, you know, it's obvious. Like, yeah, I want to do that. But you know, you open the app up and right away, I, the exact same thing. You, I open it up. I'm like, there's nothing on here, and it it's not encouraged me. It doesn't tell me what I should be doing or you know how how I'm supposed to be using this thing. Uh, yeah, and I never opened it up after that, and it, it's that's a real that's a pitfall for a lot of location based apps. Is that you know you really want to make sure that you know the people who open it up aren't opening it up to like a blank screen that you know there is some density that there that there is some content on the thing. Exactly, leverage APIs as much as possible for free data. Yeah. So. Moving on a little bit more, you don't just build apps for other people. You don't just build apps for yourself. You're also a resource for people that are interested in app development. You've got a book called Appsters and the website Idea to Appster and a few other things. So I wanted to ask, how does teaching kind of fit into uh, Blue Label Lab's bigger picture? Well, Idea to Appster, uh, Appster the book, it it fits into the larger picture in that, you know, we're able to demonstrate thought leadership in the space where, you know, we're not just an engineering shop. We're not just a, we're not just people who are just going to, you know, take what you want and build it. You know, we're, we're people who live and breathe this stuff. Um, and, you know, we work as a partner with our clients uh, in terms of developing the ideas, kind of figuring out what this thing should be and developing the right product. And so when we, when we wrote Appsters, when we started the, the idea at Appster.com, we wanted to, we wanted to foster 
both our own knowledge and kind of gather a lot of other people's knowledge and kind of consolidate it in one place. Because, you know, we know when we started, I would love to have had a resource like that with all the, the things in there. And I think a lot of the people who, you know, do end up coming to us, you know, they, they start from idea to apps there. They spend a lot of time you know, reading the articles and learning from that. And so it's been a, it's been a great resource in terms of um, us being able to demonstrate thought leadership and kind of promote, uh, you know, Blue Label itself. But it's also um, a pretty good place where we're able to actually learn and collect other people's ideas and, you know, produce what I think is a pretty good uh, portal for uh, app content and app entrepreneurship stuff. Yeah, you've got a lot of fantastic resources there. And I'm, I'm just working on building up Novice no longer. And I'm excited. I'm, I'm making a big online course based on the workshop that I used to teach that I'm so excited about. And kind of having these sort of resources there, it shows that you're not just making these apps in a vacuum. You're also thinking about what you're doing and you're exploring the different options and talking to different people, which I think uh, is really important, especially for you guys who are trying to sell your services and app building things to show that you're thoughtful and the process that goes on behind it is definitely a way to gain trust, show that you're smart and show that you can actually create a good product. Right. That's, that's our thinking. And it's also that, you know, this space that we're in, like the mobile apps, it's very, it's, it's even though it's been around since like, you know, 08, 09, it feels mature. It's still very nascent and still very like undefined how a lot of things work. Um, and there's there's no rule book. There's no there's not a lot of really concrete stuff out there. And so it's an area where there, there's the, the need for more knowledge and for people to do the thinking and you know propose theories or whatnot. And so because of you know how nascent it is, I, I think you know the idea to Appster it allows us to, to to kind of collect the knowledge and start codifying and start you know you know moving it forward, continue to move the, the knowledge ball up the hill. Mm-hmm. So to kind of wrap all of this up, I wanted to ask if there's a listener who's listening to this right now that has an idea for an app but isn't really sure what to do next, what advice would you give them? If they have an idea for an app but they don't know what to do next, I, I think it's, it, it's really interesting that if you have, if you have an idea, that's, that's a good starting point. Um, I think the, the one piece of advice I give to, to a lot of people who, who are in that space in terms of when you want to think about how does this develop in a product um, is figuring out what niche or what audience, specific audience, you are designing a product for and actually building something um, for that niche. Um, I like using that word because uh, the app store is crowded. There's 800,000 or a million apps in each of you know, the iTunes and the Google Play stores. There is an app that pretty much does everything. Um, but that doesn't mean there's not space for new apps, for apps that come in. Uh, and, and the apps that we we see having success and the ones that actually do go on to kind of achieve the promise of the idea are the ones that, you know, they might have had a, a, gen, a general idea, you know, a good broad idea, but they focused in on one particular target user or one particular demographic or one problem and really solved it for that uh, and optimized for that. So it, by doing that, it allows you to not only connect with the user, but then it allows you when it comes to, to marketing the app and promoting the app, if you have a very well-defined user, um, you can then more um, appropriately allocate marketing resources. You can focus like a Facebook campaign on that niche group of users. You can really target those people and get eyeballs in front of them. Um, and, you know, if the app is designed properly, you should have good adoption rates at that. 
Uh, I think something that things that are general purpose or things that you know people anybody can use that. It's a it's a dangerous way to start a product because it's hard to kind of make yourself stand out from all the other apps out there that could you know compete with you there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's so important because you're if you niche it down, like if you have an application for musicians, it's going to be so hard to get in the hand of all musicians. But if you have an app that's for musicians who are on tour, who are in their own vans, like yeah. if you can target it down there and you can get into even a, a decently small kind of percentage of that, you'll you'll be a lot bigger than if you're trying to just target a huge overarching kind of Yeah, group absolutely. People. Absolutely. Like yeah, finding a like a small niche and really serving them properly. Like yeah, find musicians who play the banjo and are in their own van and touring. Mm-hmm. That'd be a good product because yeah, they, 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 there's probably not an app that's just targeted right for them. Yeah, and they might need something that's very specific to them. And if you're able to do that really, really well, everybody in that situation is going to have to have it. And communities are so small; they talk, and everybody's going to talk to each other, and they're they're all going to know about you. Yep, absolutely. Awesome. Well, this talk has been absolutely fantastic. You got some awesome stuff going on at Blue Label Labs, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. I think my biggest takeaway from this interview is how much I really, really want to try his word game. I'm so excited, and June seems so far away because right now is the end of April. So hopefully that'll be out soon and I can try it. If you've enjoyed this, please go onto iTunes, leave a rating, leave a review. It always makes my day to read those. It makes me so happy, and it helps other people find the podcast as well. And until next week, have a good one. Bye.